Journey in True Crime, the place where good wine and true crime come together. Hello, people. I'm feeling good still. <laughs> like, I'm in a good mood. Um, and as promised, because my mouth is still weird, um, I will tell you the story about how I got bamboozled at the dentist. Um, okay, so let's, yeah, you know, this is a good story, I suppose, because uh, I, you know, my mouth is still weird about it. But, um, okay, so I had a tooth at the back of my mouth that, um, okay, let's go back a little bit further. I have not gone to the dentist in six years, <laughs> which, um, if you haven't gone to the dentist in quite a while, I do highly recommend that you go because I had a lot of dental work that needed to be done because I waited too long. Um, so apparently I had a tooth on my upper left side that had been cracked and over, so over some time in the last six years it had cracked and it was in real bad shape um to the point where they couldn't even attempt to do a root canal they were just like we're just going to yank it out and put a uh, implant in which is fine you know like whatever do what you got to do to my mouth it really doesn't matter i already have a gap tooth on the bottom i've got yeah cool so uh i you know i got all my cavities filled and everything was all handled and then i was supposed to go to this jaw specialist to get um my tooth looked at cool so the appointment said a consultation and I asked the lady when I was, um, getting my last set of cavities filled, like, oh, do you think they're actually going to pull my tooth? And she's like, no, 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 no. It'll probably just be a consultation because, you know, they're probably busy and unless you're in a good amount of pain, like they'll probably do the consultation and then they'll do the tooth pulling later. And I was like, okay, all right. Like, that's fine. So I go in there and, um, when I walk into the room, there's just a dental chair in there. There's no equipment, no, no anything. So I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. This is literally just going to be a consultation. Sweet. So the dentist comes in, he's super duper nice. He wheeled in a, like a thing with gloves and like a couple of tools on it. And I was like, that's not weird because like, obviously he's not going to like go digging around inside of my mouth without gloves on. Cause that would be really weird. And I actually did have a dentist who did that. Like my orthodontist did not wear gloves. And that is a weird thing to me <laughs> in my adult life. I'm like, wow, that was really fucking weird that he never wore gloves, but we're not talking about that guy. So this guy comes in, he's looking at my tooth. He's like, oh yeah, you know, you cracked it. That tooth can come out. Your x-rays look good. We'll be able to do the implant. We'll be no big deal. Cool. And then he goes, you're going to feel a little pinch. And I like my heart stopped because I was like, wait a second, like a, p a pinch for what? And next thing I knew he was in my mouth, putting Novocaine in my mouth. And then he's like, just, okay, well, we'll all come back in 20 minutes and we'll yank that sucker out and do the implant. And I was like, what, what the hell? So I, yeah, I got bamboozled. I thought I was going in for this guy to tell me he was going to do an implant. And next thing I know, I leave and I don't have a tooth. And now I've got a metal, a metal screw in my head. And, uh, I spent over a thousand dollars just, I got bamboozled. I can't even believe it. Um, good news is though that it really didn't hurt. Uh, so if you need, if you're afraid of dental work, uh, my bad experience six years ago was pretty fucking awful. And this experience, when was it? A couple days ago, really, 
I only take they gave me Vicodin to take, but I obviously uh, with the opioid epidemic, I'm not going to just randomly take like anything if I don't need it. Um, because they gave me hydrocodone, and I don't like to, I don't even really like to take Advil if I don't have to. So, um, ibuprofen has been fine. It's mostly just weird, but now because it's in such a weird spot, my lip keeps getting caught on the tooth or the lack thereof. Which, if you're gonna watch the patron exclusive episode. Um, I'm going to talk about this again. I haven't recorded it yet. It's going to be a weird day today. Um, but you'll probably see it if you're a patron. You'll definitely see my strange gap tooth. Because you can see it when I smile and when I talk. Um, and that just is what it is. It's going to be like that for the next three months. So saddle up. Because that's just what life is right now. <laughs> I'm just missing a tooth. Um... Okay, with that being said, that's story out of the way as to why I may have a slight lisp and it just feels weird to talk because my lip keeps getting caught on things. It's fine. Um, we can go into, you know, everything else. So, sorry, I'm clicking around. Um, today's True Crime Tuesday. I'm actually excited about, I always get jacked when I find a true crime that I've never heard of before. That's just something that gets my goat because I once again if you're new here I don't like to cover crimes that everybody else has covered um at least I mean I know what a couple weeks ago I did Casey Anthony but I I if okay if I'm gonna do a crime that other people have already done or something that was super popular I want to do it with my own spin on it so more or less at the end of not to ruin the surprise for you, um, more or less at the end of the Casey Anthony one, I don't think Casey Anthony was necessarily guilty. Which is, I know, a very... I will get rocks thrown at me for saying that in the true crime community. I don't think she was a good mother, but I don't think she necessarily, like, set out to kill her child. It's kind of how I feel about that. Um, I don't like Casey Anthony. I don't think she's a good person, but I... I have a different opinion on that than other people do. And that's fine. Because uh, you can have your own opinions. And that's what's great about this world is that you're allowed to have your own opinions. And you can do whatever you want. So um, that's just my personal opinion. But so I like the the more obscure ones. Because I'm sorry, but I don't want to sit on Wikipedia and look up something that everybody's already told you and something that I already know because that's not the point of this I'm doing this so I can also basically turn my hobby of researching true crime into something that you can listen to but I just did the research for you that's what I like about this so why would I research a case that I know everything about that's boring that's boring for me and that's boring for you so that's why I go for the more obscure crimes. So today we're going to be talking about Frederick Bailey Deeming, whom I had never heard of before, and he's a pretty, I guess, interesting guy. Okay, so Frederick Bailey Deeming was born on July 30th, 1853, and get ready for me to mispronounce a ton of words because I just, I just suck at this. I don't know. I, if it's not in America, I fucking suck at saying it, so I'm sorry. In Ashby de la Zouk, um, in Leicestershire, England. Yep, that's the best you're gonna get out of me. Um, he was the son of Thomas Deeming, who, um, he was a brazier, which I had to look that up. It's someone who works with brass. And his wife, Anne Bailey, hence the name Frederick Bailey Deeming, his father, you know, the last names. Um, 
Not a whole lot is known about his early life, but Deeming told people that he had spent some time in asylums, as did both of his parents. He also suffered from epilepsy from the age of 18 onward, although Frederick's brother denies that that was a thing. Um, so, he may have had epilepsy, and he may not have had epilepsy, depending on who you ask. Um, but it is generally regarded that Frederick was a, quote, difficult child. That was a consensus. They didn't say why he was a difficult child, but in every article I read, they were like, he was a difficult child. So I'm just going to assume he was a difficult child. That's the end of that. Um, at, eight, at 16, so in 1869, Frederick ran off to sea, which I had to look up, like, what the fuck that meant. Which, I'm sorry I'm cussing a lot today. I don't, I'm just in a, I'm just in a mood. Um, and all of them say that. They say, Frederick ran off to sea. But nobody really specifies, like, what exactly that means. And I guess it just means he left in a boat somewhere. But I tried to actually figure out what that term meant. And it, like, through my researching, it appears that it means, like, a scallywag. So he was, like, a rascal, a rascal, a deceitful and reliable person. One who is playfully mischievous and, like, just left. I don't know. Because he doesn't go anywhere wild he doesn't like disappear I don't you know so I don't know he whatever <laughs> he was a bad kid who ran off to sea I don't know what that means onward um whatever so I do know for a fact that in 1881 Frederick marries a quote typical Welsh lass named Marie James um they met in Tranmere England they lived briefly in Birkenhead before Frederick departed to Melbourne, Australia. Um, and I'm pretty sure, I don't know if I ever specifically say this, but I'm pretty sure Marie stays in Birkenhead for the most part. I don't think she zoops around a whole bunch and like Frederick Bailey Deeming is kind of all over the place, but I think she stays in one spot. Um, these guys like to keep it in the family because Frederick's brother Alfred married Marie's sister, Martha. So... That's a weird thing. In 1882, Frederick and Marie moved down under to good old Australia. Um, oh, sorry. Well, they, they moved down there, but Frederick moved first, and then Marie joined later in the year than Frederick himself. There we go. I was like, wait a second. That doesn't make any sense. Once again, if you're new here, I write, like, bullet points and then try to remember what I meant. I'm getting better at these things. Um, so yeah, if, if I like stumble and stutter around, it's because I didn't write this very well. I don't like this to sound scripted. I, you know, that bothers me. I don't like what, I don't like just reading you guys something that makes me feel awkward. Although I'm just an awkward person by nature, but that makes me feel uncomfortable. So I like to have like just little bullet points so I can kind of just like remember and explain to you guys what I'm meaning to talk about. But sometimes... I go a little stutterbug over things. All right, cool. Um, so during this time in Australia, Frederick was working in Sydney um, primarily, but he was also doing work for a man named John Danks, um, a man in Melbourne who imported plumbing and gas fitting supplies. Uh, Frederick was known as a good worker, um, and he was so good and so trustworthy that his employer gave him $200 credit which, um, I did the math for that for you guys, because of course I did. Um, in today's terms, that would be about $5,000, roughly. 
Um, however, the money was never repaid. So his employer was like, here's five grand, you know, do with it what you need to do with it. And then Frederick never gave the money back. And that was in 1884. Um, Frederick worked for a Sydney gas fitter, um, which I had to look up what that is. It's a worker who installs or repairs gas pipes and appliances. I guess that makes sense. I didn't know. Um, but Frederick was charged for stealing brass fittings from his employer. Um, he refused to admit that he had stolen the parts, but they were found in his home. So obviously he took them. Uh, and Frederick was sentenced to six weeks in prison. Uh, and when the verdict was read in court, he pretended to faint. So he's just a, a real hoot of an individual, it appears. Um, so Frederick was eventually released and he continued to work as a gas fitter, which seems weird that he would get a job again if you went to jail for stealing brass parts, that somebody would hire you again to do the same job that you were, like, convicted of stealing from. Yeah, <laughs> but I guess it was a different day and age, I suppose. Maybe that information wasn't available. Almost, it was the 1800s, I'm assuming it wasn't available. Just He was just a, such a likable, trustworthy dude that he's like, yeah, you know, it was a big misunderstanding. I need a job so I can steal your things. Um, by 1886, he and Marie had three children. Um, two of the girls were Sydney-born, and I think the other one was born back when they were in Berkshire. In December of 1887, uh, he was put on trial again. So our boy Frederick was put on trial for fraudulent insolvency, which is basically transferring money to another person or company to avoid debtors. So it appears that, like, you know, maybe somebody was after him for money. So instead of giving the money back to the person he owed money to, he transferred it to maybe a friend so that it looked like he didn't have any money, but he did have money but they just couldn't take it because they couldn't prove it was his type deal. Um, he was released on bail uh, for his crime, and then he disappeared. Totally innocent. When people run from the law, they're totally innocent. Um, so this is the part where it does get a little dicey, um, because our boy Frederick is kind of hard to follow. So he's he's a massive globetrotter. He's really all over the world. And the dates and times of these things differ depending on where you read the information. So I tried to come up with like a good just here's like the gist of what happened. Um, but just know that these may have happened in a slightly different order. This order makes the most sense. Um and it's one of the ones I read. So, yeah, things happen in different orders in different articles. But this one made the most sense for the timeline of, like, where he kind of ends up. So this is the one that I'm going to go with. Um, so, yeah, all these things happen. I just don't know what order they happen in. So in January of 1888, he was in Cape Town, South Africa, working under the name of Harry Lawson and was involved in several successful frauds and theft. Um, he was known to have been involved in a specific incident, which is the Transvaal Diamond Mine Swindle in 1889. Um, but this is, see, this, so that happened, I don't know. So <laughs> these dates are kind they're so messed up. Um, but later in that year in 1888, Frederick told Alfred, Alfred and Walter, th those were his two brothers, that he was returning to England with a, quote, considerable fortune. Um, it is thought that he possibly went back to England once during that time because Marie gives birth to another child, their fourth. It's assumed that either he had visited the area and she conceived 
or that she was unfaithful and he was all right with it. We, we know there was a fourth child that came out of it. We know that he told his brothers he had a bunch of money. Um, and we know that by 1889, he was back in England, but he was also known to be part of that diamond mine swindle in 1889. So I wonder if maybe in January of 1888, he had successful frauds. He went back to England for a short time, banged his wife, met with his brothers, then went back to Africa, did the diamond swindle, and then came back to England. Right? I'm assuming that's kind of how, that's my order of events, because that's what makes the most sense. In 1889, he was officially back in England. He was well-remembered on the steamship that brought him home because he was flashing expensive jewels and harassing female passengers. And these are jewels that he would have gotten from the diamond swindle, you know, showing these off to try and get a, get a female friend for the time of the boat, I would assume. Um, after his return to Kingston upon Hull, which is a port city um, where the boats come in, I did Google that, I'm assuming it was like the biggest one at the time, he moved to a town called Beverly. Mind you, his wife <laughs> lives in England and he moves to England but not with his wife. He told everyone that he was a retired sheep farmer named Harry Lawson from Queensland, Australia, living on 1,500 pounds a year which would have been about $45,000 today, roughly. So, actually, $45,500, um, roughly. He courted a woman named Helen Matheson. Um, she was the 21-year-old daughter of his landlady, <clears throat> and he married her on February 18th, 1890. Um, so, bigamously, he was still married to Marie during that time. Um, ironically, <clears throat> Birkenhead, where Marie was at, and Beverly, where he was living, are basically on opposite sides, like east and west sides of the country. Um, he married someone far enough away. Um, one day, though, he disappeared from Helen, his new beau, and took all of his expensive gifts with him. Um, Marie and the rest of Frederick's family had heard about his bigamous marriage, though, because gossip travels, apparently. Um, so, apparently, though, he left Helen to visit Marie, bringing her lavish gifts, and told her that he was leaving for South America and he would send for her and the children once he was settled there to Marie. He was like, Marie, I'm going to South America. I'll send for you. You can join me there once I get settled. Um, but he never, uh, really makes it to South America. He swindled more jewelry. Um, so before he boarded the boat, he swindled more jewelry. He stole a bunch of things and he was arrested in the capital of Uruguay and sent back to England on the charge of, quote, obtaining goods by false pretenses and was sentenced to nine months in prison. So he never actually really got off the boat in South America. He basically landed there, got arrested and was shipped right back to England, from my understanding. If he spent any time in South America, it was in a jail waiting for a ship to leave. So he never actually makes it there. He gets out of prison in July of 1891. He headed to Liverpool and checked into a hotel under the name of Albert Williams. Um, he took a lease on a villa in the village of Rainhill, and at this time, it's suspected that Marie and the children were living there, except they were known as Frederick's sister and her children. He was still pretending to be Albert Williams, but I don't understand the point of that. I don't know why you're living in a different city. I don't know why you're lying about your name. Um, maybe I find out why later, and I just forgot that I figured it out, <laughs> which is likely. Um, but he's still lying about his name. At some point, 
Marie and the children stop coming around, and when people ask about Marie and the children, um, Frederick says that they went home. Um, so while he was leasing the home in Rainhill, Frederick complained often that the drains were defective and that the kitchen floor needed replaced. Um, it's important to note that he closely supervised the work on the floor. On September 22nd, 1891, Frederick, still under the name of Albert Williams, marries Emily Lydia Mather. Two months later, in November 1891, Frederick took his new bride to Australia on a German steamship steamship that got to Melbourne on December 15, 1891. Either on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, Frederick murdered Emily and buried her under a hearthstone in one of the bedrooms where he was staying and covered the body with cement. He paid a month in advance for the property, but left almost immediately after Christmas. Um, he had a fake name. Obviously, it was Mr. Droon. I don't know his first name, but that's what he signed up for the room under. On March 3rd, 1892, a prospective tenant of the home complained that there was a disagreeable smell in one of the bedrooms. Um, the landlord lifted the hearthstone and smelled death and called the police, who found Emily Mather's body. A post-mortem study on her body showed that she had been hit several times in the head, but the cause of death was most likely that her throat had been cut. At this point, I should mention that there is some kind of connection people want to make um, to Jack the Ripper here. I'm just not hip to that jive, and I plan on skipping all of that mumbo-jumbo, um, because I personally don't believe, I, d I really don't see these two cases being related at all. Um, and that's just, once again, my personal opinion. Um, I just, I feel like our boy Freddie Deeming had a lot more going on in his life than um, murdering sex workers in Whitechapel. Um, he's swindling diamonds left and right, moving from Africa, trying to go to South America. And he's taking the time and the intelligence to hide the body, put it out of sight, take care of things, and like thinking enough to put like a month in advance on the home that he planned, you know, and then leaving. That's too thought out for Jack the Ripper, in my opinion. His were, well, and then there, well, there are people who believe that Jack the Ripper had suffered um, from like syphilis and his brain was basically like Swiss cheese and that he, you know, had Swiss cheese brain and he wasn't thinking straight, which I like, I guess you could see that like, if you delve into this a little deeper, maybe further down the line, I just don't, I don't get that vibe for Frederick Deeming. I feel like he was more calculated, even, even with the whole situation. I just feel like Frederick Deeming is not, I don't see that. Okay. <laughs> people go down that rabbit hole. People really do. And there's a lot of people who believe that Frederick Bailey Deeming was Jack the Ripper. And I'm not hip to that jive. I will not get on that. I will not get on that bandwagon. Okay, after Emily's murder, we know that he sent a nice letter to Emily's mother, um, swindled another jewelry store, and put an, put out an ad looking for um, a new person to marry, more or less. It's like the gist of what he did in that time, <laughs> which he was a busy man, you know? And there's the other, that's the other thing. He was so calculated that he sent a letter to Emily's mother saying that they were having a great time in Australia and things were fine, not to, like, rouse suspicion. He didn't, like, mutilate any, anybody's body and just leave it in an alleyway. Like, this was, he was calculated and he was covering his tracks and he knew what he was doing was wrong. That's why I don't see the two being correlated. Um, 
Also, we do know the police have a good idea of what he looks like. He's a known criminal, um, and he, you know, is very boastful, and he's charismatic, and he's going around talking to a bunch of people, and, you know, he's very chatty. So people do, between the landlords that he knows, and just, it's, yeah, people know what he looks like, they just don't know his real name. So people are aware of who he is. Um, most of these articles are really long. Like, that whole summary I just gave you, that you can thank me later, because they're just, I mean, if you want to read them, go ahead. They're just really long, and they all kind of say the same thing. Just a short summary <laughs> of what of what they say, basically. Um, so, around January 12th, 1892, Frederick makes his way to Sydney under the name Baron Swanston, which is just, that's a real bougie name. I'm into it. On the ride there, he met and wooed Kate Rouncefell. He gave her stolen jewelry and trinkets, and she agreed to marry him. Um, using a forged document, Frederick got a job at a mine in Southern Cross, Australia. So he's still in Australia. On January 22nd, 1892, he departed from Sydney, still under the name Baron Swanston. He was boasting on the boat about his wealth and high society and tried to make the moves on some women, but he was shut down by the male family members who didn't believe his boasts. Which kind of, like, reminds me of, remember that scene from Titanic when Jack is, like, all dressed up and he's, like, real charismatic, but, like, nobody there really trusts him because he's obviously not one of them? Kind of the vibe that I get from, like, this whole, like, if you could just picture this scene of, like, Frederick in, like, nice people clothes, like, look at me, I'm such a, like, rich, wealthy person, but people are like, no, you're not, you're just a thief. Um, kind of the vibe I get. His new bride, Kate, had promised to meet him in Western Australia, but she never joins him. And, like, there's, once again, I'm summarizing, there was a whole thing of all these messages that Frederick is sending to Kate over and over again, like, I thought you were going to join me, why aren't you coming, why aren't you going to be here, where are you at, and she never, ever joins him. Um, smart. Smart, Kate, because you avoided death, <laughs> probably. Um... Frederick Deeming was arrested at his job at Southern Cross on March 12th, 1892. But, however, at this point, there is some developing moves in England. Bodies have been found in Rainhill, ones that were related to Frederick. So the bodies of Marie Deeming and her four children, Bertha, who was 10, Mary, who was 7, Sydney, who was 5, and Leela, who was 18 months old, were found underneath the reconcreted floor at the home Frederick Deeming rented in Rainhill. Their throats had been cut, Marie had been strangled, and it appeared that these murders happened near the time frame when Frederick was courting Emily. These murders had gone unnoticed for eight months. Because the family traveled so much, extended family hadn't batted an eye at the lack of contact from Marie. The lease was organized in such a way that it couldn't be rented for six months after he left it in case his, quote, sister came back, and the lease apparently also let him resurface the concrete floors. So, once again, we have this... He thought out so far in advance six months that he was going to murder Marie and all his children, and he planned out six months where he could guarantee those bodies would not be found because nobody would be going in the house. That is pre-calculated and premeditated murder, 10 out of 10. Like, that is, he is covering his tracks really well, calculated, not Jack the Ripper. Um, 
So Frederick Deeming was tried at the Melbourne Supreme Court on April 25th, 1892, um, for the death of, bup, 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 I'm sorry, I forgot her name, um, Emily, Emily, sorry, for the death of Emily. Um, his defense was insanity, stupid. Deeming claimed to have caught syphilis in London, which is why people probably try to relate this to Jack the Ripper. But like, even then, that's a shit defense because like you are so calculated. You don't have no this. You can't plead insanity and you can't plead any of that because you no. He said he had been visited by his mother's spirit, who influenced his actions. I call bullshit. You are too calculated. You are not insane. You were well thought out and well planned out. No. Sit the fuck down, Frederick Bailey Deeming. Um, so, he was never tried for the death of his family, I don't believe. Um, I didn't write about it, so I'm going to assume, because... Yeah. <laughs> he was found guilty and hanged on May 23rd, 1892. Um, so, I'm assuming just for the death of Emily. He had written an autobiography while in jail, but it was destroyed, and I don't think anybody ever read it. He was 38 years old when he was killed. Um, well, hanged. Executed is a good word. Um, and that's, that's Frederick Bailey Deeming, which is just, it, it was a wild ride from start to finish. He was really all over the place. And the fact at the end that he tried to claim, that is so annoying when people try to claim insanity. No, you... It's such a shit defense, and it's not even, especially in his case, it's not even good. You are just a a lifelong criminal who turned to murdering people, and you try to claim insanity. No. Uh-uh. Not today. <laughs> not today, Frederick Bailey Deeming. I will not listen to your defense of insanity. Um, okay. Well, that was that, right, guys? We got through it. It was a wild ride from start to finish, and we friggin' did it, right? Um, this was your True Crime Tuesday episode. Um, the patron-exclusive episode should be up by the time this is posted. So check that out. <laughs> and I will see you guys for what? Serial Killer Sunday, probably. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll catch you guys later. <laughs>